morning. Well, it's great to be in a community of believers. Um, and this is a community of believers. Um, let me just introduce myself. Uh, I'm Chris Pennington, uh, and I am the husband of one wife, Julia, praise God, and the father of three children. Um, and let me give you a, a practical demonstration of what we're going to be thinking about this morning and uh, regarding the text that we have just read. I have a cup here. Oh, hang on. Let me just put that down. I have a cup here. And if this represents our bodies and um, it is full of air, but it's full of sin, let's, let's imagine it's full of sin, <clears throat> How can I get rid of the air or the sin that's inside of this cup? If I, if I tip it upside down, the air's still inside. If I, any suggestions? How, how can I get rid of the air that's inside of here? Sorry? Fill it with something else. Absolutely. Okay. Brilliant. So, water. Water represents the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But hang on. I've just taken some out. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's really the essence of what we'll be learning about this morning, is that we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Today's title is called The Powerful Witness of a New Community. And we shall see it was the work of the Holy Spirit in the new community of Christians after the events of Pentecost, which enabled them to be a powerful witness for God. Firstly, though, let's just recap on last week. And this will benefit for anyone who wasn't here last week. Last week, we learned that the book of Acts was written by Luke as a continuation of the gospel of Luke. It connects the life of Jesus with the birth and life of his church. The ministry of Jesus on the earth had been for three and a half years. Then following his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. This marked the end of Jesus' physical ministry on the earth. And the next stage of this ministry was the believers on the earth. That's you and me. That's us together. Acts chapters 1 and 2 tell us of this next stage when the congregation of believers or the first church was born. Now the, this birth of the church was dramatic as it was culturally groundbreaking. The disciples had been told to wait until the Holy Spirit came. When the Holy, then the Holy Spirit who had only ever been poured out within the Old Testament per period on certain believers was now poured out on all of the assembled believers in that house. And so we left the narrative last week with 3,000 people coming to faith, responding to this mighty work of the Holy Spirit and to, of course, Peter's speech. So what we have here in the last five verses of Acts chapter 2 is, if you like, a summary of what the church was doing, how it was functioning as a body of believers. Let's not forget that when Jesus was here on the earth, he was the leader of the disciples. 
and they followed and did everything that he asked of them. Now that he was gone, how were the disciples going to continue Jesus' work? Who was going to lead them? Well, last time I preached here, not only was I clean-shaven and a bit lighter, I was also moving house. And we've moved house now, and as a consequence of that, we needed to get some new flat-pat furniture. Now, this is uh, furniture that you perhaps order online or over the internet, and it arrives in a nice cardboard box, all flat-packed, ready to be assembled. Now, the most important part of putting the flat-pat furniture together is not necessarily the screwdriver or the Allen key, but it's actually the instructions. It's the instructions that tell you how to put it together, and it should also contain a blueprint of how that said product should look like once fully assembled. Well, in these last few verses, if you like, it contains a set of instructions and a blueprint of how the first church was assembled. It shows us how the body of believers would continue to spread the gospel, but also inwardly how they were building up the body of Christ to strengthen it for service. We read here in verse 42, four activities that they did. And let's take them one at a time. Firstly, we read that they were devoted to, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Which gives us a sense that they applied themselves or they gave themselves over exclusively to this activity. They gave themselves over exclusively to understand the apostles' teaching. Remember that they only had the Old Testament to refer to at this stage. The New Testament hadn't been written. So they turned to the apostles' teaching, of which, of course, the apostles were well qualified because they were the ones who were with Jesus. If you think about it, 3,000 people had just come to faith and they all needed help in understanding what their new faith meant. And I say new faith, of course, because these were formerly Jews who had already had a faith in God. And so they now had a faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now we know that there were 120 people in the house when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. So this means that after the day of Pentecost, each disciple, if we do our sums right, 120 into 3,000, had 25 people then to uh, disciple, to mentor. Now that's more than some of the congregations in this country, isn't it? Of course, we have today the benefit of all of the apostles' teaching contained in the New Testament. But how devoted are we to understanding our Bibles? These disciples were grounded in Scripture. Are we? Can we do better in knowing our Bibles? Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, the Greek word for fellowship comes from the root meaning common or shared. So fellowship means common participation in something, either by giving what you have to the other person or receiving what he or she has. Give and take is the essence of fellowship, and give and take must be the way of fellowship in the common life of the body of Christ. Christian fellowship is two-dimensional. 
and it has to be vertical before it can be horizontal. We must know reality of fellowship with the Father and His Son before we can know the reality of fellowship with each other in our relationship to God. The person who is not in fellowship with the Father and the Son is no Christian and so cannot share with Christians the realities of their fellowship. One of the ways, of course, we do this is to fellowship over food. And I hope that after the service you'll be joining us and sharing fellowship over food. Number three, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, in context, we understand this to mean communion. The very act of remembering Jesus' death on the cross and his sacrifice was something that they took seriously and something that they did together at every opportunity. And this, of course, is the centrality of the gospel message. Our Christian faith hangs on this crucial event in history. Without it, there is no saving grace. We're all doomed in our sins to an an eternal future of despair. With it, we have the hope and joy of having a restored relationship with our God and the assurance and acceptance of of his love and of our eternal destiny with him. We too must continue to remember the Lord's sacrifice, and we'll be doing this after this. And remember the great cost that he has, pa- he has done. He has paid for our sins. This is reason to celebrate and what gives us such joy. Number four, they were devoted to prayer. Prayer is a powerful weapon against the enemy. It sets people free. It mobilizes angels. And it is our direct way to speak to God, our Heavenly Father. Through his son, Jesus Christ. Prayer is such a vital activity in the life of the church. And in our own lives, we must not neglect it. As the saying goes, seven days without prayer makes one weak, one spiritually weak. And it's true in my life, certainly. If we don't pray, then we can be out of step with God and his purposes for our life. How can we know what the Father wants for our lives if we don't communicate with him, if we don't pray? Now, I've said that the birth of the church was dramatic as it was culturally groundbreaking at the start because if you think about it, the church had just received a huge kickstart. What I mean is that before Pentecost, there were 120 believers, but but when 3,000 came to faith, all of a sudden, around about 2% of the whole city, the whole city of Jerusalem, was then converted. And those that were just visiting for the Feast of Pentecost would have been taught these four fundamental areas of the Christian walk. Studying the scriptures, sharing in fellowship, and remember the Lord's sacrifice and prayer. And so we can see that those who were visiting Jerusalem just for this uh, Feast of Pentecost were have been grounded in these four areas before they went back to their towns, villages, and cities. Of course, from these places, they would then share the gospel, which would have resulted in localized groups of believers in those different countries. Luke says 
that the converts were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And so this would have been a direct fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. If you've got your Bibles, it would help to just look at this verse. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is key. In order to be a powerful witness, we need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It was, of course, evident, as we read in the next verse, in verse 43 of chapter 2, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit that enabled them to perform amazing signs and wonders that they did. Now let's just pause briefly on this expression, signs and wonders. We're not told what they were, but in context, they were supernatural events. An example is given to us in Acts chapter 3, when Peter heals the lame beggar. Now throughout church history, the debate has continued as to whether these signs and wonders are just for the times of the apostles or for now. This theology has even got a name. You're either a sensationist, or the miracles stopped when the last apostle died, or you're a continuationist. In other words, the signs and wonders and the miracles continue for today. Well, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I believe the answer is somewhere in the middle. Because to restrict our miracle-working God to anything else is, I believe, imposing our theology on God. There are a couple of scriptures that I like to highlight which just would just help us understand this area a bit better. And if you've got a Bible, it would help if we just turn to it together. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. It says... So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And then if we flip back to Mark 16 verse 20 Mark 16 verse 20 It says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Again, the signs and wonders that they, ha- that they did. Notice that in both of these texts, the Lord does not confirm the apostles themselves, but rather his word or the message that the apostles were preaching. Signs and wonders do not testify to the apostles, but to the message of salvation by the apostles. I'll repeat that again. Signs and wonders do not testify to the apostles, but to the message of salvation preached by the apostles. 
So the two principal things that are authenticated by miracles are the Lord Jesus and the message about the Lord Jesus. Does this mean that we shouldn't expect miracles when we pray? Not at all. But if today we witness any miracle, or if any miracle should happen to us, then we need to ensure that we give God all the glory and honor. Our God is a miracle-working God. And I've personally been witness to miracles, and miracles have happened to me. Well, let's just leave that there, and I'm happy to discuss this further after the service. Let's go on to Acts chapter 2, verses 45, 44 and 45. So next we see in these verses that the believers were strengthened in service for each other by sharing what they had with each other. It reads, All of the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now let's be clear. No, it's sorry. Now it's clear from the next verse that they didn't sell everything. They still had homes to go to. So this wasn't an attempt to live in a commune. The take-home point here is that since they were in such fellowship together, they were in such unity together, and if there was a need within their community, then they sold what they had in order to fulfill that need, in order to provide for those who were in need. At this time, of course, there wasn't any social security or benefits that you could get from the government. You are on your own. So this would have been a very real demonstration of uh, the Christians holding lightly unto what they had. And this would have been a witness to those non-Christians around them. Now, there isn't a command that we should do this today. But are we prepared to give financially if there is a need? If we hold tightly onto what we have, how can God give us anything else? If I hold my fist tightly, Andy can't give me anything else. You can't. I need to hold my hand out in order for him to give me something. The idea is, we give in order to receive, and this, of course, requires faith. Let's just think about this for a moment. Just, just think about for what we own, what we call our own. If I was to ask you who owns your house, what would your response be? Some of you might say, I do. Others might say, well, the bank does until I pay off the mortgage. And both, in a sense, would be correct. However, what does the Bible say? Well, let's turn to 1 Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 12. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 12. 1 Chronicles 12, sorry, I said 12, didn't I? 1 Chronicles 29, verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Skip forward. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We have given you only 
what comes from your hands. And this, this teaching is echoed in James 1 verse 17. You don't need to turn to it, I'll just read it out. Every good and perfect thing is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The point here is that God gives us what we have, what we call our own, and we should therefore be ready to give whenever, whatever is required for God's service. This can call for sacrificial giving, but as Jesus himself observed, the woman in the temple, who was given two small copper coins, she was more blessed, he said, that she was more blessed than all of the others who were given out of their wealth. In other words, it's not what we give, it's the heart attitude that we give it in. And this is a perfect segue into verse 46. Let's just look at verse 46 of Acts chapter 2. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The first Christian's heart attitude was one of thankfulness. They were thankful for the Holy Spirit who had filled their hearts with joy and for the continuing witness and teaching of the apostles. And such was the unity and fellowship amongst them that they met together daily in the temple to encourage each other and to learn more. They also met together in one another's homes and shared meals together to get to know each other through fellowship. Underpinning all of this activity was their heart attitude. They had glad and sincere hearts that were devoted to each other and to God. If we ourselves are to win souls for Christ, then we also need to have this same heart attitude. Because it is our heart attitude that defines our character and therefore our witness to those around us. It's no good meeting here on a Sunday for a couple of hours if we walk out the door and then for the rest of the week we act like the world around us. This new community of Christians were a powerful witness because they were devoted to the faith. They had the right heart attitude and they revered their God, our God. Because of this, we read that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. They were accepted by the religious Jews at that time for what must have appeared them being very religious because they were meeting every day in the temple. And it wasn't just the religious Jews that saw they were making a difference in their community, but the ordinary folk of Jerusalem. Such was the dynamic power and witness of these Christians that others were attracted to Christ through them. Now, of course, we have a modern-day example of this, taking the 1904 Welsh Revival. During that time, so many people were coming to Christ in Wales, that the crime rates actually dropped to zero in some places. And some of the local pubs had to close for the lack of patrons. The pit ponies, who were very used to being sworn at, didn't understand the miners when the miners spoke to them in clean language. They had to be retaught. Now, we're not told from the text that this is what happened. 
But since we have this modern-day example, I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine or extrapolate that this is also what would have been their experience, and even more glorious. When God moves in the hearts and minds of people, there is a new hunger for all of these different areas, stated in verse 42. There's a hunger for the word of God. There's a hunger for fellowship. There's a hunger for remembering the Lord's death on the cross. And there's a hunger for prayer. And this, of course, is attractive. People come to Christ through the witness of God-fearing Christians. Are we God-fearing Christians? Are we God-fearing people? Do we revere our awesome God and worship him with all honor? Let me give you an example. Neil Martin, an MP for Banbury in the early 80s, was once giving a group of his constituents a tour of the Houses of Parliament. During the course of the visit, the group turned the corner, and there they were met by Lord Helsham, then the Lord Chancellor, wearing all of his regalia of office. Lord Helsham recognized Martin from the group and said, Neil! The group, not wanting to offend the command, promptly kneeled to the, the floor. Now, God doesn't demand that we kneel before him. But do we give him all of the honor and reverence that he deserves? The Bible says, and we sang it at the first song that we sang at the beginning of the service, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We find that in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you, God, for yeah, just bringing that together. We shall do it, of course, willingly. But those who don't know Christ will do it with fear and trembling. Okay, finally, it says in the closing chapter, in the closing of chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Last week, David argued that the supposed quotation from St. Francis of Assisi, which says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, was incorrect. And I wholly concur with him. The only way that people will hear and respond to the gospel is if we use words. And that's exactly what Peter did to the crowd. Verse 38 of chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gospel message hasn't changed from that time to now. And if we are faithful to God and use our opportunities to share the gospel, then, then the work of the Holy Spirit will continue changing lives. And God will add to our number, his number, for his glory. Yesterday we went round Chicksbury Abbey. I don't know if you've been there. It's a lovely old and cold building. It was cold because it was cold out there. And, but I'm sure it's cold in the summer as well. But walking round, what struck me, I did not see a presentation of the gospel anywhere. 
Nowhere did I see. The reason why this place has been built is for the glory of God. And we praise God because of his son who died on the cross for your sins. Nowhere did we see that. It was just all about the building, all about the history, all about the history of Tewkesbury. A golden opportunity. How many people go to Tewkesbury Abbey every year? Must be thousands of people. The Church of England have got a golden opportunity to show and present the gospel. Do they? Okay, in summary, if you haven't picked up on what I think these few verses are teaching us, I think it's number one. The first church was a powerful witness in their community because they gave themselves over, or they were devoted to these four things. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Of course, for us today, that's the whole, the whole canon of Scripture. Number two, to fellowship with each other. And this included caring for those who, um, who, who had need. They gave to each other as they had need. Number three, to communion. To remembering the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. This is, of course, the centrality of our gospel. And number four, to pray. We ourselves, of course, need to pray for ourselves, for others, and for our nation. If we want to be a powerful witness in our community, then we also need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and devote ourselves to these things. Amen.